Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today is our 20th anniversary as a public church meeting in this building. 20 years ago, the building looked a good deal different, and we didn't have a sign out front. We just had a banner that we draped across what used to be the garage. And when we put that sign up, I remember saying to Brent, I refuse to believe that we're going to put up a sign that says the grace of God is preached here and then the whole thing is going to collapse. 20 years later, I feel good about that statement. The first couple of years of our existence, I felt it was necessary to encourage people and demonstrate to them that God was in this, that God was for us. And several things happened to us those first couple of years that were just nothing but miraculous. There was no other way to explain it. First off, we should never, a little group that was meeting in my living room, we should never have been able to afford this building, the land next door. No bank was going to give us a loan. And yet, God managed it. We bought that piece of land first. It was terrible horse land. I don't know how many of you remember it, but it was really beat up land because of the high tension wires that run across it. And so no builder wanted to touch it. Nobody could build in the middle of that land. So we went to the city and said, could we build a church on it if we parked under the high tension wires? And they approved it. And we got that piece of land for a steal. The owners of the land just wanted to get rid of it. There were no longer horses on it. There was an old barn on it, an old ramshackle barn. And so we got busy and took down the barn and hauled off the barn. And, and you can see the land now is, is beautiful land next door. But then one person came forward and said that they would pay the entire amount of what it cost us to buy that land. Suddenly we owned land. And we were looking to build on that land when we were contacted and told that the house and land connected to the land we just bought might be for sale. Well, the first time I walked in here, this building that was originally built by a retired general in a wheelchair, he built it to his specifications. 
And the first time I walked in here, I was a little concerned. I thought, well, this may not work as our meeting place because, well, it was all too enclosed. We ended up getting this place for a steal because the investors who had bought it when the retired general died, the investors just wanted to get their money back. So we never had a real estate agent involved or anything. We just came in, made a deal, and we bought this building and all that land out there to connect with all that land over there. And then we went to the city and said, can we plot this as one great big piece of land so that it all falls under the jurisdiction of the church, which is advantageous for property taxes. One of my favorite stories that I used to tell frequently was that having gotten a bank loan, which we should never again have been able to get, but because we owned the adjoining piece of land outright and had it all paid off, a local bank was willing to take the risk as long as we used that property as down payment on the loan. And then somebody we've never met from California who never set foot in this building, not in 20 years has he ever been here. He sent us enough money to pay off the building. Suddenly, we owned everything outright, and we were debt-free. And that all happened in our first, what, three years of existence? It was absolutely astounding, and I loved telling that story because it showed, yet again, how God was for us, how God was working on our behalf. Well, before we had that bank loan paid off, we were paying quite a bit every month on that bank loan, servicing that debt. And we knew that we needed a parking lot because people were showing up and wanted to put their cars somewhere. And we needed a parking lot out here. Just something flat and gravelly would work. But we didn't have the money to do that. One day I was driving, coming down Hazelwood here. And on our property out here, there was all this heavy equipment. Big industrial land grader and a couple of those cat things. And I got out and I looked. They were just parked there. So I put my card on the seat of the industrial grader saying, this is private property. Call me. They did. And they explained to me that the city was putting in these sidewalks out front. And they apologized profusely. Oh, we'll move all that. We're sorry we didn't know that it was private property. And I said, oh, no, you're welcome to stay there. I need something. I need a parking lot. The next day, that parking lot was all flattened and graded out and ready to go. Didn't cost us anything. That was just God's providence. Just time after time after time, we kept seeing things like that. And I've, over these years, gone back to those kinds of stories. And of course, over time, we've knocked out walls. There's no more walls left to knock out in this building. But over time, it's become the building that it now is. And it's been a very, very agreeable and useful building to us these past 20 years. Little did the general know when he died that he had built a church. And then God took him home. And that's why there's wide doors, five entrances and exits, sidewalks all the way around. It's all built on a concrete slab. It satisfied every requirement for a public building in Smyrna. Amazing! That's what he built. And that's what we ended up with. Those are all the stories that I love to tell. I love to tell those stories because those stories show that God is for us. But now my story has changed. Now when I want to point at God's providence, God's provision, God's care for us, God's kindness to us, God's perseverance, God's amazing grace to us, all I got to say is 20 years. 20 years, and during those years, we have seen churches here in Smyrna rise up and fall down. Groups larger than ours here, but we've seen groups gather together and start meeting in schools or meeting at the YMCA or meeting other places, groups that you can't find anymore. 
during the COVID days that we have all just lived through, several groups had a lot of difficulty because they were renting places that then threw them out because, well, like schools, just closed completely and told church groups, you can't meet here anymore. The YMCA that was all masked up during that time sent people out. You can't meet here anymore. And so the blessing of having this building to meet in for the last 20 years has really been astounding. And it has kept us going even as other groups, unfortunately, have collapsed. I don't like to see churches collapse. But knowing that they have and that we are still here 20 years later, and there are still people in the room right now who have been with us for those whole 20 years. And we're all still together, still worshiping God together. I say all that just to say, what an astoundingly faithful God we serve. It's amazing that he has done that for us. We've had our ups and downs. We've had our difficulties. We've had our tough days. But through it all, regardless of what else has happened, we've always had a home. We've always had a place we could come. And because we've owned it debt-free all these years, nobody could take it from us. We never had to write Ichabod over the door and abandon the building. Instead, we've been able to meet here week in and week out And I am glad to say, I don't know what kind of trouble politically this will get me in out there on the Internet, but I am glad to say that through the entire last year and all the COVID stuff starting a year ago, March, GCA never closed its doors. We never stopped. We didn't miss a week. Week by week by week, we kept preaching the gospel. Oh, yes, there was a Sunday where I was preaching to four people. But the next week it was 8, and the next week it was 12, and then we all just came back. So again, God knew exactly what he was doing 20 years ago. The way he provided for this building, the way he allowed to pay off this building, the astounding events surrounding our ability to even get this building. I'm just so proud of you all for allowing me for 20 years an hour a week, sometimes an hour and a half a week, and then Wednesdays on top of that, just to pound away at God's word. Not a lot of churches will do that. They tell their preachers, 15 minutes tops. Make it a little homiletic sermon because we got to get out of here and we got to beat the Baptist Deshonies. We got to go. We don't have time to wait around. And yet you all have very patiently very kindly, very encouragingly allowed me to pound away at the word. We've covered in these 20 years, verse by verse, all the books of the New Testament and the vast majority of the books of the Old Testament. Last night I was trying to think of which books we have not preached through verse by verse, and I think it's the book of Psalms, the book of Jeremiah, which I would still obviously like to do, And Song of Solomon. Those are the three I can think of that we have not gone through verse by verse. But we have read a great many of those psalms. In 20 years, no one has stood up here for the voluntary scripture reading and said, please stand for the word of God. Turn to Song of Solomon. That hasn't happened once. But... There's your challenge. (laughs) Whoever has scripture next week. But that's it. And uh, in the New Testament now, we're covering some books a second time. And we're just going to keep doing that. We're not going to change it. 20 years and we're just going to keep pounding away at the word of God. Because 20 years ago, well, 25 years ago, when this little group started meeting in my house, we originally were meeting in hired rooms and hotel conference rooms and such. When we started and picked a name, Grace Christian Assembly, this was an experiment to find out what would happen 
if you just took away all the trappings of religion, because I grew up in very formal religion with all the extra falderall that goes with religion. And I wondered what would happen if we just stripped away all the stuff and got back to, thus says the word, if you got people together and you sang to God and you prayed to God and you worshiped God together and you spent time collectively in the word of God, the experiment was what would happen if we just did that? We started doing that in my house and we've been doing it for 20 years here in this building and I can now confidently answer that question. You know what happens when you do that? People become Christians. It's wonderful. And they become Christians who are grounded in the word of God. Not grounded in my ideas, my philosophies, things that I've made up. They're grounded in the word because. If you are convinced of Christianity from the word of God, nobody can talk you out of that. Because the word of God doesn't change, hasn't changed in 2,000 years, so it's not likely to change. And so you can't be dissuaded from your Christianity if your Christianity is rooted and grounded in the word of God. If you make some kind of profession of faith, if you become a Christian by your own choice because somebody at the front of the room was really persuasive and they talked you into making some kind of confession or profession or making Jesus your Lord and Savior or coming down front and making some kind of confession. If some persuasive person talked you into doing that, the next persuasive person can talk you out of it. And we've all seen that. We've all experienced it. And in the 20 years of GCA, we've seen it. We've seen people who have been here for a little while who look like they really got it. They really understood it. And they're not here anymore. In fact, they're not in any church anymore. They've just given up on Christianity and went off to chase other things. But if your Christianity is rooted and grounded in the word of God, then it doesn't matter who's standing here. If it's me, if it's Micah, how much did you enjoy Greg Wren last week? Mm -hmm. Through the years, we've had so many men who have stood here and preached the same gospel because it's a gospel that is drawn from the word of God and it agrees with your spirit because it agrees with your faith which is rooted and grounded in the very word of God and it doesn't matter who's standing here. A day is coming in the not too distant future when I'm not going to be standing here anymore. I'm not going to be standing anywhere anymore. I'm going to be laying down somewhere or just finished, one or the other. I hope that you all keep going. If you take care of this building, it'll give you another 20 years. Just keep going and keep rooting and grounding your faith and your Christianity in the word of God. Because if GCA has stood for anything for these last 20 years, I hope it has been that the word of God is trustworthy and that's where we place our understanding, our knowledge, our wisdom, our opinions. We get it all. We draw it all out of the word of God and the exegesis of what God actually said. And I hope when I'm not here anymore or when I'm here and just can't make cogent sentences, I hope that you all will just keep lifting up the word of God. You know, this pulpit I'm standing at was supplied by Micah back when he owned a furniture store. And right behind that, we were given this gift, the Preacher's Bible, which is a large, very nice Bible. And so I told Tom and I told Micah, any time that this building, open or closed, any time that this building is standing and this pulpit is here, the word of God needs to be front and center right here on this open right here on this pulpit. When the reformers started redesigning Catholic churches, 
the Catholic Church for a thousand years always placed the altar front and center. If you go to a Catholic church today, that's what you'll find. The altar is right there front and center so that they can continue doing the bloodless sacrifice over and over and over again. They just can't seem to get Jesus down off that cross. And so the whole mass is centered around the altar and the repeated sacrifice of the blood of Christ over and over and over again. The reformers, as they redesigned churches that once were Catholic churches, moved the altar from the center of the room and put the pulpit there because they wanted the emphasis to be on the word of God. And that's why this pulpit stands right here front and center and says right on it, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Because it is the word of God that is the only means by which you are truly, genuinely going to understand what God has done in history, what God has already told us he's going to do in the future, and what God is doing for you right now. You're not going to know that by doing religious practices. You're not going to do that by imagining stuff or listening to babbling brooks or hugging trees. You're not going to get that by exploring your navel. You're not going to get it any other way than by a concentrated effort on the word of God. And I hope that that's the reputation that GCA has developed over these last 20 years. And I hope that's the tradition that you will carry on for the next 20. All right? Amen. Turn to Ephesians 6. Actually, turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to read through all of chapter 5 so that we can start at verse 22 when we get there talking about the voluntary subjection to each other that we began teaching on two weeks ago. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness." But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the evil deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret." But all things become visible when they are exposed to the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then... Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, 
for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Two weeks ago, I told you that that phrase is talking about a form of voluntary subjection. For instance, we've already read about husbands and wives, and you'll notice that the language is wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The language is not husbands make sure your wives stay in subjection. That would be involuntary subjection. Instead, what he says is wives understand just like everybody else in Christianity has a particular place, has a particular headship over them, recognize how God has ordered these things, especially within the church, and then voluntarily submit yourself to God's order of how you do things. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now Paul is going to give several examples of being subject to other people. His examples are specific to Roman culture, and we kind of lose that sense reading it now. But he's going to talk first about husbands and wives. Wives in Roman culture didn't have as many opportunities as men had. And yet, Paul not only says women need to be subject to their husbands, but that husbands need to love their wives and sacrifice for them the way that Christ loved the church. And the next example he's going to give is parents and children. He's even going to go back and quote one of the commandments in order to demonstrate that it has always been God's intention that children are subject to the parents. But then Paul takes the opposite view and says, but fathers, don't drive your children to dismay. In other words, if Paul had said, fathers, make sure that your children are utterly subject to you, then the children would be under an involuntary subjection to their parents, and the parents would be constantly driving their children down and causing their children dismay and fear. That's not the way that Paul lays out the whole scenario. He says, rather, children, it is appropriate for you to be subject to your parents. And then he says, because this is the first commandment that also contains a promise. So it's good for you to be subject to your parents. And then Paul's going to talk about masters and slaves. Here in 21st century America, because we have a relatively recent history of slavery, when we see the word slave, we think immediately of that form of slavery. The kind of slavery that Paul is writing about is a kind of indentured servitude where it wasn't about race, it was about economics. And if you found yourself in such dire straits financially that you could no longer support yourself, or you were so deeply in debt to somebody, you could work off that debt by being servant to them. Paul then is going to say, you servants, be voluntarily subject to your masters because that's how Christians ought to act. But then he's going to turn around and say, now masters, treat your servants well. So in each of these scenarios that Paul lays out, he does not say, whichever of you has the power, make sure that you keep the other party in subjection to you. Instead, what he says is, you who are subject to somebody, you who have headship over you, whether that is you have a master or you have parents or you have a husband or the husbands have Christ over them, whoever it is, subject yourself to that headship because that's what's good for you. That's what works out best for you 
because that is the way God designed it. Now I'll let Paul say that. No, before we go, let Paul say that. Turn over to 1 Peter for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 5. Because Peter picks up this same theme, this same idea, that we as Christians, rather than being proud, rather than being arrogant, rather than being boastful, that we ought to subject ourselves to each other, to be humble with each other, to be helpful to each other. Remember that Paul wrote in the Philippian letter that we were to regard others as better than ourselves and that every one of us wasn't supposed to look on our own things but to look on the things of others. So Paul keeps driving this theme. Wherever you look in the New Testament, you're going to see this theme, this theme of humility and voluntary subjection to one another for the good, the sacrificial good of the person that you're subjecting yourself to. Okay, so 1 Peter 5, everybody there? I'm just going to start reading from verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Here's what he exhorts the elders to do, the leaders within the church. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. There's that voluntary thing. To willingly, voluntarily do these things, and to do it according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, not to make yourself wealthy, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those who are allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So Peter, too, doesn't say, you leaders within the church, make sure you keep your congregation in subjection. In fact, he's very specific to say, don't lord it over the flock. After all, remember whose sheep they are. They're not your sheep. You're shepherding somebody else's flock. They belong to the Lord, and he's going to take it personally, and you're going to have to give account for how you handled his sheep. So shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Notice he didn't say, you elders, keep the younger men subject to you. You younger men, likewise, be subject. Voluntarily subject yourself to the elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That means whether you're young in the church, young in the faith, or whether you're an elder and grown in the faith, he doesn't say one of you should take absolute authority over the other. Instead, he says both of you and all of you be subject to each other. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Well, if you know that God Almighty is opposed to pride, that seems like a pretty darn good reason to get all of that pride out of your system. And yet it's built into our flesh. That's why pride is the most repeated sin in the Bible. It is brought up over and over and over again because part of our sinful, fleshly nature is our natural arrogance, our natural pride, our natural desire to put other people in their place in an attempt to make ourselves look better, as if pointing out other people's faults somehow makes you look good. But what Peter says is, all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore. That's an interesting imperative. 
because it doesn't say hang around Christianity long enough and then you'll get humbled. What it says is humble yourself. You know what God's expectation is. You know that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now that you know that, do the work. Humble yourself. Don't think of yourself first. Don't become arrogant. Don't become self-centered. Don't become conceited because that is your natural tendency. Your natural flesh desires to keep other people constantly in subjection to you. That's all part of your ego. Instead, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That's your inspiration for the imperative. The fact that God himself is the Almighty. And he, the Almighty, is opposed to the proud. And how much can he humble you if he decides to do it? Therefore, avoid that punishment and humble yourself before the Lord, knowing the mighty hand of God. So your inspiration to humble yourselves to each other is not, and this is so typical of human beings, it's not to humble yourself so that other people will see you and think, well, that guy's humble. Because that just turns back on you. You know as soon as you do something really humble, you'll start thinking, I hope somebody noticed that. Here's an old joke. We'll find out in a minute whether it's worth it or not. There was a man whose church recognized his humility, and so they gave him a, a humility badge to wear. One Sunday he wore it, so they took it away. <laughs> oh, good, it was worth it. Yeah, instead, humble yourselves, therefore, knowing the mighty hand of God under the mighty hand of God. You're not humbling yourself ideally to impress other people, and you're not doing it completely for the benefit of the person you're humbling yourself in front of. You're doing it as a worship toward God. You're doing it as a recognition of his almighty sovereign power in your life. You're doing it because you recognize his goodness and his grace, his kindness to you, his faithfulness to you, and therefore you know that he did it all, not you, and therefore you should humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he, here's the great part, he then will exalt you at the proper time. I think that particular exaltation is going to be when you jump up out of your grave because that's also going to be the power of God and he's going to bring you to his glory, to his heaven as a trophy of his grace. That is a mighty fine exaltation. Amen. I'll take that. But during this lifetime, while you're dealing with other sinners here on the planet, recognize the almighty sovereign God and humble yourself. Okay, with all that attitude in mind, you can see why Paul would write in the Ephesians, the very similar idea, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That doesn't mean slavish fear. That doesn't mean I'm so afraid of you, I can't stand in your presence. It means in the reverence, in the recognition of who he is, that he is the almighty, that he is the all-powerful, and that you, compared to him, are merely a worm. That's David's language, not mine. And once you know that, then in the fear of God, in the fear of Christ, you can then appropriately subject yourself and humble yourself in the ways that God has prescribed for you because that's what's good for you. Make sense? Yes. Once you get that whole paradigm in place, it's a whole lot easier to be humble. Mm -hmm. It's a whole lot easier to subject yourself in ways that God says are appropriate. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. 
And now, on the other hand, verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Two weeks ago, we talked about the miraculous example, the astounding, overwhelming example of love that Christ demonstrated to the church in that he gave his perfect, sinful life for her. He ultimately sacrificed for her. Christ didn't die for any sin of his own. He didn't have any sin. Instead, he took on responsibility for our sinfulness and then bore up under the lash and under the crown of thorns and under the beatings and under his beard being plucked out under that chunk of wood that he carried through the streets and then nailed to that chunk of wood and then the very wrath of God came on him so bad that the sun was darkened so that people couldn't look on him as his visage was marred beyond any man. And he did all that guiltlessly and he did it for you. Okay, that is an extreme example of phenomenal sacrificial love. Paul grabs that and says, husbands, love your wife that way. It's quite a directive. There are women who kind of resist the idea that they should be subject to their husband. There are men who resist the idea that they should be sacrificial to their wives. But in the economy of God, in the paradigm that God has laid out, it is good for both the husband and the wife to do the very thing they're instructed to do here because as the husband is sacrificially loving and kind to his wife and then the wife is subject to the husband, that marriage magically gets better because the innate qualities in a man are such that they want, they desire, they crave the affection and the respect of their wife. And wives, it's built into them. They can't escape the fact that they want, that they need to be genuinely loved and protected and covered and safe and to know that the man that they live with isn't going to hurt them and is going to protect them. And once you get that in a marriage, good marriages break out. So Paul is not only giving this directive to husbands and wives in order to demonstrate proper subjection, but he's also saying it because that's what's good for both the husband and the wife. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Two weeks ago, I didn't have time to kind of camp on that phrase because we were running out of time. But notice how it is that Christ is sanctifying, cleansing his church. What is the means that he is using in order to cleanse his church? He is washing her by the water with the word. That again is why we've been pounding away at the word of God because that is the means by which the church of God is sanctified and cleansed, washed as if like with water, because all baptisms, all Old Testament washings, cleansings, and baptisms were all done to the outer man with water. Before the priest could go into the temple, into the tabernacle even, he had to go by what was called the laver of cleansing, which was a brass bowl, shine so brightly that he could see his reflection in it. And he would look at it to see if he had any spot on him, any uncleanness, because he couldn't go before God with any uncleanness on him. And so he would stop at the laver of cleansing and clean his outer self and then go before God. 
but none of that process, none of those animals, no amount of cleaning could clean the inner man. Every priest that stood in the temple before God was still a sinful human being, still unclean on the inside. Here Christ says that he is going to cleanse his church, sanctify his church. That means clean her outside and in, purify her. So there's no spot, no blemish, no sinfulness in her because he has paid the price of sin and taken on the wrath of God on behalf of her and in her place. And therefore he is preparing himself an appropriate bride for himself because he is sinful and spotless and clean and holy and righteous and only a spotless clean holy righteous wife would be appropriate for him and therefore he is in the process right now of cleaning and cleansifying cleansifying of cleaning and purifying and cleansing his wife and he's doing it by the word by the very word of God Notice, by the way, who the actor is. Notice that Paul did not say, Christ needs an appropriate bride. Really, really clean bride. Cleanse yourself so that you're an appropriate bride. No, it says that Christ made himself a bride appropriate for himself. And he cleansed her and he purified her and he sanctified her that means separated her <coughs> set her apart for himself and he did it by the word so he is the actor we are the ones who by grace are acted upon he is preparing his church to be his bride so that we can go to his house that belongs to his father which he's there preparing for us now and is going to come back to get us so that we and he and the father will be together in glory forever and he's the one that did all the action in order to make us appropriate to come live with him in his glory so that he says verse 27 so that he might present to himself he's doing the presenting and he's the presenter and he's the person receiving the presentation. He is presenting to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Anybody here feeling holy and blameless? Don't raise your hand. If anybody raised their hand, I would be showing you the door. No, none of us are holy and blameless. I can find something to blame you for. Notice I did not mention anybody by name. Appreciate it. <laughs> I can find things to blame you. If God, the all-knowing, all-seeing God, who knows your thoughts, the intention of your hearts, who knows your every action and deed for your entire life, if he was looking for something to blame you over, do you think he could find something and yet Christ is purifying you to such a degree, making you the perfect, spotless, blameless wife. He is doing that to such a degree that there's no spot, no wrinkle, and you are completely sanctified. The root of that word sanctified is hagios, which is holy. He is making you holy so that you will be the bride of Christ, appropriate to be married to the very Son of God. And his bride is the church. So, says verse 28, get ready for this, men. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. Paul demonstrated that Christ has loved the church as his own body. He gave his body for her. He sacrificed himself for her, but then he rose from the grave spotless and unblemished, resurrected, never to die again, and sits at the right hand of God and is now in the process of making his church, his bride, like himself so that she too can participate in his everlasting glory 
And so because he loves the church in such a very high way, Paul can say, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Because he who loves his wife loves himself. Because the two are one flesh. That's been true ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Adam and Eve. Back there, God declared that the two would become one flesh. And so if you love your wife, you're really also benefiting from that. As you care for your wife, you're caring for yourself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nurtures his flesh. He feeds his flesh. He clothes his flesh. He washes his flesh. He takes care of himself. So if you love your wife and provide for your wife the way you love yourself and provide for yourself, then you're going to provide for her in the appropriate biblical sacrificial way. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are all members of his body. And then he reaches all the way back Quote straight out of Genesis 2, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and his church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now he's going to transition to children and parents. Chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise. If you would, Tom, look up Exodus 20, verse 12. If you would, Leon, look up Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. They both say essentially the same thing. This is both the giving of the commandments at Mount Sinai. That's what Tom's going to read. And then the recitation in the book of Deuteronomy where those commandments are recited yet again. And what you're going to see is this fifth commandment about honoring your father and your mother also has a promise in it. And none of the other commandments do. You'll have no other God before me. That's a direct commandment. There's no promise to it. It's just don't have any other gods. Don't make any graven images. There's no promise there. Just don't do it. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. There's no promise there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then as the commandment is given, there's the explanation that God made the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested so you rest on the seventh day. And then we come across the fifth commandment, but then as you get into the sixth, you get into thou shall not kill, no promise. You get into don't commit adultery, no promises. Don't steal. Those are all just directives. Don't do it. Those are commandments, not suggestions. Don't do it. Don't lie. Don't bear false witness against your brother. No promises. And don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. No promises. Now Tom is going to stand and read the fourth commandment, which contains a promise, and Paul yanks that out and says, keep this because there's a promise attached to it. Tom. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's a promise so that your days may be long. He's talking to the children of Israel so that you're going to live in this land of milk and honey and do it so that your days are long and prosperous. There's a promise in the middle of that commandment. And now Leon is going to read pretty much the same thing. Deuteronomy 5.16 Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. And that it may go well with you on the land that the Lord God has given you. So Paul points that out. I, I find it a really interesting little theological commentary on Paul's part. 
that he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for that is what's right. That's what's appropriate. Honor your father and mother. But then he tells us that is the first commandment with a promise. And then he quotes the promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. In other words, children, be obedient to your parents because that's what's good for you. It is beneficial to you. Notice again, it did not say, parents, make sure to keep your children in abject subjection. Instead, it's children. Subject yourselves voluntarily. Follow after your parents. They're older. They're wiser. They know stuff. They'll protect you. They'll keep you from harm. They'll feed you. They'll clothe you. And you're going to have a good, long, God-fearing life if you just follow the command of honoring your father and your mother. But then on the opposite side, verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. How would you do that? How would you go about provoking your children to anger? Well, the quickest way to do that is by being a tyrant. As soon as you start being harsh and hitting your kids and yelling at your kids and they can never do anything right, they can never please you, well, then they're going to be angry and they're going to become sad, and they're going to become despondent, and they're going to recognize there's nothing they can ever do to satisfy you as a parent. So Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And the discipline and the instruction of the Lord is found where? In the Word of God. It's found right here in the Bible. And so that is all part of the sanctifying process as Jesus is sanctifying his church through the word. And so you're even to raise up your children according to the proper discipline and instruction of the Lord that you find in the Bible. Then he turns his attention to slaves and masters. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Notice that he did not say, masters, keep your slaves in subjection. Instead, what he said was, slaves... Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. The reason he added the phrase according to the flesh is so that you recognize that your earthly masters are not in competition with your heavenly master. Your heavenly master is your real master, but while you're here on the planet, if you are under some kind of obedience to a master, do it this way, with fear, with trembling, and in sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. There yet again, he said, wives, be subject to your husbands as Christ. That is always the inspiration for you putting yourself humbly, voluntarily subject to somebody else. Your inspiration is Christ, who took on a level of humility that you're never going to reach, where he humbled himself to death, even the death on the cross. And so you use that as your inspiration to humble yourself to those people who have headship over you, to do it appropriately in sincerity from your heart and not by way of eye service. What that means is not only when you're watched, not only when you know that your master has his eye on you and so you act like you're doing everything obediently and soon as you're out of his sight, you become either a thief or lazy or whatever else. But do it not as slaves of men, do it as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, not just fleshly obedience. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one of you does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether you're a slave or whether you're a free man. Okay, now he's going to flip the coin and say, and now you free men, you masters, do the same things to them. Well, there had to be some Christian masters reading that and going, wait, what? I'm equal with my slaves? Paul in the book of Galatians wrote that in Christ, there's neither male nor female, free or bond, which means master or slave, a free man or an indentured servant. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile. In Christ, 
Salvation is available to all of them, and therefore appropriate humility and appropriate subjection ought to be the reaction from everyone. Masters, do the same thing to your slaves. And give up threatening. In other words, that was the best way to get obedience, apparently, societally. The way you would try to get obedience out of your slaves was to threaten them, to beat them, to whip them. That was very common. But instead, Paul says, give up on threatening them. Knowing that both their master, notice that he has just changed the terminology from you masters on the planet to the master in heaven, knowing that both their master and your master is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So what Paul has laid out here, through several different strata of society and Roman culture, is that all of us who name the name of Christ ought to use Christ as our example, ought to recognize the phenomenal humility of Christ, the amazing sacrifice of Christ, and then use that as our inspiration to voluntarily take our place within the body of Christ. And within the body of Christ, Paul has had a great deal to say about the body and how the more apparently respectable parts of the body should not look down on the less respectable parts of the body because every part of the body is necessary. Every part of the body is in the body because Christ himself has put us there. So through all of these examples that Paul has been laying out for us, the theme has been across the board, humble yourself, subject yourself, because ultimately your subjection is to Christ himself and a recognition that you do belong to a master and that you've been bought with a price and you don't belong to yourself. And so it is appropriate as ambassadors of Christ here on the planet to act in such a way, to walk in such a way, to behave in such a way as is appropriate for the hagios, for the holy, for the saints of God. We shouldn't act like, we shouldn't walk like the rest of the world. We ought to be different because we've been saved with a very, very high price. Got it? Got it. And I think once you see it through that lens, then it's easier to subject yourself because that's what's appropriate and that's what's expected from you as Christians. Right? All right. Questions? No? Okay.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. We invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.